Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Paul Matsko. Joining us today is Ted Galen Carpenter, a senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of numerous books. His latest is Gullible Superpower, U.S. Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Ted. Well, thank you very much. What is a freedom fighter? <laughs> I guess it depends on who is defining the term because U.S. officials uh, – defined a lot of people during the Cold War and since as freedom fighters when they didn't really appear to stand for freedom in any reasonable definition of that term. When you have the Afghan Mujahideen, whose name even translates as holy warriors, not freedom fighters, but you're portraying them as freedom fighters, or corrupt thugs like Jonas Savimbi or the Kosovo Liberation Army, then the uh, definition is so loose that it really doesn't have a true meaning. Is this just a kind of – there's the classic saying, one man's patriot is another man's freedom fighter. Or one man's terrorist is, sorry, is another man's freedom fighter. Or is that kind of what you're saying? Or I mean, is it kind of relative in that sense? Or are you saying something more specific about our relationship to quote-unquote freedom fighters? I think there was a tendency to define any uh, anti-communist uh, faction during the Cold War as consisting of freedom fighters if they were opposing uh, the Soviet Union or a Soviet-sponsored government in the Third World. Uh, there was also a tendency to overlook defects among factions that the United States government was supporting. In some cases, I think that was wishful thinking. I think there were officials, there were people in the news media who honestly believed that some of the people we were supporting, that the United States was sponsoring, really did stand for freedom and democracy. Uh, there were other, I suspect, more cynical officials who realized that most of the people the U.S. government was supporting uh, were not advocates of freedom or democracy, much less both values. But they were convenient allies against the Soviet Union and uh, some of its allied states. Is it bad that – I mean the classic phrase of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, foreign policy is messy and you need allies. Sometime we were allies with the Soviet Union in World War II and, and that worked for those purposes but it wasn't something we were going to become best friends with them. Is it, is it, is it okay to become allies with even maybe sometimes reprehensible people? Uh, in situations where you're fighting, say, the evils of communism? It depends on the uh, the stakes involved. Uh, clearly, in World War II, the United States and other countries were facing a uh, incredibly dangerous expansionist power in Nazi Germany. And when your vital interests are at stake, when the, the, the freedom and perhaps survival of the country is at risk, then it justifies creating alliances with almost anyone that is uh, willing to help us and looks useful from the standpoint of our interests and uh, stakes. But when it's not a matter of vital interests, and most of the quarrels during the Cold War didn't even come close to reaching that threshold, then the United States, if it truly believes in its own values, its own support of freedom, its own support for human rights, then it, it risks undermining 
and fatally compromising those values if the United States makes common cause with uh, repressive authoritarian movements, movements that uh, commit atrocities of if our survival, our fundamental liberties are not under dire threat, then we have no justification for making those kinds of moral compromises. Yet we did throughout the Cold War on multiple occasions, and we have done so on several occasions during the post-Cold War era. Ted, one of the things I was struck by as I was reading through your um, exhaustive examples of U.S. interventionism and support for so-called freedom fighters, um, it, there's a set of them that has to do with the Cold War, uh, and the logic is, well, they're either for us or against us when it comes to the battle against international communism. And then there's a set of examples from the war on terror. Um, those two episodes, though, are separated by – well, it depends how you date it, but let's say 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and 2001 with the 9-11 uh, attacks. But yet those the, the underlying logic feels very similar. How do you bridge those two eras and, and why do you think we see the same kind of patterns of reasoning taking place in each? That's an excellent question. Uh, I think there is a tendency in both eras to exaggerate uh, the interests of the United States that are involved in various quarrels. Certainly, it is hard to see how the United States had vital interests at stake in places like Angola during the Cold War, and yet we supported a corrupt semi-socialist thug like Jonas Savimbi, pretending that he was, or at least portraying him as a true freedom fighter. Uh, we'd done something similar in the post-9-11 era, supporting the Iraqi National Congress to help unseat Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Again, we saw freedom fighters where freedom fighters simply didn't exist. And we seem to believe, or at least purport to believe, that the United States had crucial, crucial interests at stake. When the interests involved, if they were involved at all, were marginal in nature. So that is a nasty habit that the United States uh, needs to break. And there's also an, a bridge between the Cold War and uh, the War on Terror, which we saw with the Balkan Wars and mm. the U.S. support for the Kosovo Liberation Army, again, where the United States had next to nothing in the way of interests at stake. And yet we were crawling into bed with a particularly reprehensible organization. That's an interesting question. You pose it in your book and it's this question of how much were these people being misled by absolute charlatans who were knowingly misleading, telling American foreign policy leaders what, the, what they were going to do, uh, how much the foreign policy people maybe – were overstating their case. They knew that these people weren't as good as they were saying on TV or on the Sunday morning shows or something like this, but they felt it important to sort of champion them as freedom fighters or how much the American foreign policy establishment really believed this, maybe in some self-delusional way uh, that that these people were actually going to be freedom fighters at the end of the day, or maybe they could make them freedom fighters with enough support. I mean, do you, would, do you fall on any one of those? Or it's like a mixture of, of all three, kind of depending on the situation? I think there's definitely a mixture throughout both the Cold War and the post-Cold War eras. Uh, it's hard to believe that 
a cynical, very worldly figure like uh, Vice President Dick Cheney actually believed that Ahmad Shalabi and the Iraqi National Congress were honest, upright advocates of democracy and fighters for freedom. On the other hand, I can certainly believe that George W. Bush and uh, a lot of people in the American news media, some of the uh, prominent neoconservatives at think tanks in Washington actually bought into the arguments that Chalabi and his associates were making. During the Cold War era, going back to uh, Jonas Vimby in Angola or the Nicaraguan Contras, you found uh, conservative journalists especially who signed on to those causes. Even very bright people like uh, William F. Buckley Jr., the editor of National Review, who really seemed to regard uh, Savimbi as a noble freedom fighter, who seemed to regard the Nicaraguan Contras as being, as President Reagan described, the moral equal of our found, founding fathers. Uh, Reagan said that even in his private diary entries. So uh, you mentioned Dick Cheney, you mentioned some of these um, uh, kind of Cross. I mean, they, they've been around for several decades. And I was thinking of, as I was reading your book, I was thinking of uh, someone in the news recently, uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr, who surfaces, I mean, he's one of these figures, kind of like Rumsfeld, um, Dick Cheney, who surfaces time and again over the last 40 years. So like Bill Barr was writing a memo calling for the CIA to be allowed to destroy records uh, after the church committee, you know, told them they, they had to stop that kind of thing. And he defended the he wanted the uh, President Bush senior to pardon the Iran Contra obstructors. And again, today you have, you know, his involvement in the Russian investigation. Why do the, some of the, the same kind of group of Washington actors um, keep resurfacing and their mistakes, their advocacy for, uh, you know, a wide variety of foreign interventions? It never catches up with them. Like they're still around 40 years on making similar mistakes. Uh, why are they kind of Teflon uh, uh, bulletproof? Uh, there certainly is a phenomenon in Washington, especially in the foreign policy arena, of failing upward. <laughs> it seems like no matter how many blunders these people make, how many disasters their policies create, they're always around and usually at increasingly prominent positions. I mean, we have Bill Crystal still uh, as a talking head on television news programs again and again and again, despite his utterly disastrous advocacy of the Iraq war and many, many other mistakes of judgment with regard to U.S. foreign policy. There seems to be uh, the ultimate good old boy network within the U.S. foreign policy establishment, that mistakes, no matter how many, no matter how severe, are always overlooked by your colleagues. It's bad manners to bring up mistakes, blunders that have caused problems for U.S. foreign policy. And again, no matter how um, many errors are made, that doesn't seem to have a negative impact on the careers of these individuals. Paul Wolfowitz, one of the major architects of the utterly disastrous U.S. 
led military intervention in Iraq, was later promoted to be head of the World Bank. This is the kind of pattern we've seen again and again and again in Washington with respect to foreign policy figures even more than their domestic policy counterparts. I think that's true partially because it seems like the opinion on foreign policy never really changes, So, so which is that America should be heavily involved in the rest of the world. So that if you if you did a mistaken version of that and you say, well, maybe it was – we shouldn't have done this thing. But you're still on the right team, right? Even no matter if you're Republican or Democrat, you're still on the – America needs, needs to be forward deployed and needs to support freedom fighters and get rid of bad regimes. Yeah, it seems like you can be on that team. Uh, you can be batting below the Mendoza line of a 200 <laughs> average in baseball. But you're playing the game. <laughs> uh, but you're still part of the team. You're wearing the uniform. You're part of the club. And uh, that does give these individuals a lot of protection, a lot of credibility. It makes U.S. foreign policy, unfortunately, terribly rigid and sterile. And we've certainly seen the consequences of that, in particular, over uh, the period since the end of the Cold War. We certainly saw part of it during the Cold War as well, obviously the Vietnam debacle. But it seems like we've had next to nothing in the way of significant successes since the end of the Cold War. And we have had multiple failures, some very severe failures. And interesting that something that strikes me as we're talking is that if we are going to get involved, based on our own principles to some extent, if we are going to get involved in some country that we perceive as dangerous, uh, such as Iraq, um, it, it seems that we almost have to go and find some group of of would-be Democrat people who are displaced by some tyrant or something uh, to justify the fact that we might even get involved in that country. Otherwise, if we don't have one of those groups of people, if there is no dissonant faction, then we can't really say, oh, we're just making the people realize what they really want. It's like, well, no, it seems like the people actually all want this. So maybe part of what they do is they go look for such factions when they're looking at a dangerous actor and say, is there an undercurrent of quote unquote freedom fighters there who are being repressed by the regime? And if we latch onto them, since you know maybe John Bolton would want to invade the country no matter what, but if we latch onto that, the sort of those disenfranchised people, then we can kind of get a, a toehold in there and justify further military engagement. That's an interesting point. I would say that advocates of U.S. military intervention are, are often shy imperialists. They don't want the stigma of the United States obviously dominating a country, much less ruling directly. So if they're are uh, organizations or factions that the U.S. can sponsor that can portray as uh, representing the goals of freedom and democracy, and especially if there are at least plausible signs that they do so, then that is much preferred to just a brazen U.S. intervention uh, with the U.S. totally running the show. Uh, even at the time of the Vietnam War, of course, the U.S. was sponsoring uh, supposedly free elections in South Vietnam, and we were backing indigenous Vietnamese leaders, never mind that the United States was calling the vast majority of the shots behind the scenes. But at least that image was portrayed. And I think there was a bit of tutelage, the hope that the groups or factions that we were sponsoring would, with enough U.S. guidance, 
actually turn out to be the kind of representatives of freedom and democracy that we wanted. Uh, again, the model that was evoked time and time again was how the U.S. managed to uh, install democratic systems, effective, stable democratic systems, in both Germany and Japan after World War II. Never mind that the vast majorities since then did not resemble post-war Germany or Japan in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying to anticipate a conservative counterargument here, or, or maybe not even conservative, an interventionist counterargument, which would be to suggest that, okay, well, uh, we'll acknowledge, we'll stipulate that what, what Ted's saying here in this book is true, that many of these interventions um, on the behalf of freedom fighters end up getting uh, their messy entanglements, the people we support end up being um, thugs, uh, dictatorial uh, uh, dictators, um, th they end up being bad people. We're, we're not on the side of the angels in many of these conflicts. Yet, the argument would go, during the Cold War, if we didn't do it, the, the Soviets would have taken over. It would have been Soviet thugs spreading communism. Therefore, on the net, it's still worth it uh, to prevent you know spreading Pax Sovietica, I mean, the, the Soviet empire. Uh, so even with the messiness, it's still something we should do. How would you respond to that, that counter-argument? Well, of course, one cannot rerun history and adopt a less interventionist U.S. policy and see how things worked out. What we can say is that a lot of the movements the U.S. did sponsor turned out to be uh, very repressive, corrupt, uh, particularly ugly regimes once they took power. And the movements that didn't succeed certainly had human rights records that, that offered as many warnings as, as one could possibly imagine. The Soviet-sponsored regimes were indeed usually brutal and corrupt, but the United States had a very disturbing tendency during the Cold War of preferring friendly dictators who we could still portray as members of the free world. We preferred them to unpredictable democratic movements, particularly if those democratic movements appeared to be even slightly left of center. And for instance, overthrowing the uh, democratically elected government in Iran to reinstall the Shah of Iran in power uh, did not turn out very well at all. It was not uh, an honorable act, and it was disastrous in the long term. Supporting a succession of South Korean military dictatorships rather than taking the chance with democratic movements in South Korea was dishonorable. And ultimately, the U.S. even abandoned that approach, realizing that uh, just because a regime was not necessarily willing to do the bidding of the United States in every instance did not mean that it was going to be a communist puppet regime. And we found that out in, uh, in South Korea. The democratic successor regimes uh, turned out to be uh, fairly stable and democratic and, for the most part, moderately pro-Western. So our nightmare was overdone with that justification. Hmm, that's actually a really good point. I, I'm actually reminded as you're, you're speaking, um, during the deliberations among Iranian uh, university students uh, just preceding the Iranian revolution and uh, overthrowing the Shah in uh, in the 70s, there was a discussion about whose embassy they should storm. And of course, 
it's not necessarily appreciated now, but some of the activists at the time were, uh, I don't know if democratic is, not, is the right word, but they were, it was not just the Ayatollahs sponsoring the revolution. They had these university students and they, they had a serious conversation. Should they storm the uh, Soviet embassy? Uh, because the Soviets, well, they're on their border, they're traditional enemies. They had imperial aspirations over, over uh, Iran and it's, uh, you know, it's warm water ports. And uh, or should they storm the American or British embassies as, in a sense, retaliation for the overthrow of Mossadegh in the 50s? And it was a lively debate. And if it hadn't been for prior U.S. intervention, that movement, the Iranian Revolution, would have had an anti-Soviet spin rather than an anti-American spin. And so I'm, I'm struck to the extent to which that that impulse to intervene is a self-fulfilling prophecy that we end up pushing movements into opposition against us by intervening, right? When if you just left well enough alone, it would, it wouldn't have gone, it wouldn't have eased necessarily gone into the Soviet orbit in the way that um, the most paranoid foreign policymakers thought. Another thing, um, Ted, some of your arguments remind me of uh, Andrew Basevich's argument in like the Washington rules, limits of power. Um, this idea of a set of actors in in Washington, in D.C., who promote war uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, some of which are, well, because it, it plays well with voters. It, it helps at, at, at the polls. Sometimes it's because, well, look, if you are a member of the military brass, you have an interest in using military solutions to diplomatic problems. Some of it's uh, weapons manufacturers have an interest in selling weapons and the, the sales are good, good during wartime. So so people are buying into this lie. They're gullible. That's the title of the book of your book. Where do you see that kind of impulse to buy into this narrative coming from? I happen to believe it is more ideological than it is uh, the network of uh, vested interests, although I certainly take uh, Dwight Eisenhower's admonition about the military-industrial complex quite seriously. In fact, I think uh, his original formulation was the military-industrial-congressional complex, which was more accurate. And I would add to that the intelligence bureaucracies and uh, its associated allies. But the role of ideology is not trivial at all. I think that there are more people within the interventionist camp who honestly believe that there are dire dangers out there. They overestimate the severity of the threats. And they also believe that U.S. motives are basically good and that U.S. activism a, in many ways, a hyperactive foreign policy will, for the most part, produce beneficial results, not only for the United States, but for the regions in which the United States intervenes. Never mind that the track record is showing the opposite result. Uh, they still believe that uh, this is a necessary and beneficial foreign policy and their caricature of the alternative is uh, the U.S. equivalent of North Korea as a hermit republic, where we don't take an interest in events outside the United States. We never take action to forestall threats. Uh, it's, again, this extreme caricature of American isolationism. And anyone who suggests even a moderately less activist or interventionist foreign policy 
is immediately smeared with that label. So you're dealing with an entrenched mindset that has developed really since World War II. And despite the uh, blows that that faction has suffered uh, in recent decades, indicating that their doctrine, their preferred strategy is not very good, uh, they still cling tenaciously to that belief. So it's not just vested interests. That pl certainly plays a role. But uh, the, the pre prevalence of that ideology, the tenacity of that ideology is, uh, I think, at least as important a factor. I'd like to get into a little bit of a couple of these stories. Uh, your book is full of a bunch of examples of gullible support for democratic movements, but some of them you highlight as possibly the worst. And I think there are two that I'd like to talk. You already mentioned Savimbi in Angola, but I think that's also interesting in terms of the interest we had there and how much he was ballyhooed in D.C. So I think that fits in well. So, so for people who don't know that we were involved in Angola, which I think a lot of people <laughs> right. don't know that we were involved in Angola, uh, what was kind of going on there and, and who was this guy? Well, after the uh, colonial revolution that uh, eliminated uh, Portugal's control of Angola, the country uh, experienced a great deal of factionalism, originally three factions vying for control. One uh, that the United States initially supported was, as seems all too often the case, the weakest of the groups and uh, faded out pretty quickly. The United States backed a man named Jonas Savimbi, the head of the Union for the Total Independence of Angola, who purported to be both anti-communist and pro-democratic. He and his organization were pitted against uh, the government that took power in the capital city, Luanda, backed by the Soviet Union and Cuba. And uh, American uh, admirers of Unita and Savimbi wanted Washington's strong support for that organization and its insurgency against the Soviet-sponsored government. Well, the problem was that uh, if they had looked more carefully, Savimbi started off as a client of communist China. Even his troops in the field tended to wear Mao-style uniforms and caps. Uh, the internal governance of UNITA was totally authoritarian, with Savimbi uh, fostering a cult of personality that I think the Kim family in North Korea uh, doesn't uh, surpass by much. There was a lot of evidence of corruption, of brutality, of uh, Savimbi eliminating opponents within his organization. And that information came out gradually uh, over the course from the uh, late 1970s the late 1980s. But the Reagan administration backed uh, Savimbi. Conservative media outlets uh, lauded him, lionized him as the epitome of a freedom fighter and advocate of democratic capitalism. Now, most of the abuses that Savimbi and Unita committed were known uh, widely by the late 1980s. Yet the Heritage Foundation and George H.W. Bush's administration still invited Savimbi on a visit to Washington and again took him around uh, to hold interviews, to give speeches, and just lauded him 
as this wonderful advocate of freedom and democracy. That, to me, reflects either an inability to see reality or an unwillingness to acknowledge strong evidence that the person the U.S. is sponsoring as a freedom fighter was, in fact, a corrupt thug and nothing but that. So that's the kind of thing that I find especially disturbing. I agree. And, and I think that, that one was quite disturbing. And, and the one that we've alluded to a couple of times, uh, the Iraqi National Congress. And since it seems since it's 20 years now, uh, just about since we did this, and a lot of people may not well, either weren't old enough or may not remember the buildup to the Iraq war. But how how did the Iraqi National Congress sort of fit into that buildup? Uh, and, and you know, kind of even going back to the first war and, and everything there, they, they had been working in Washington for a very long time. But how important were they in some sense to, to the eventual Iraq war? The Iraqi National Congress and Ahmad Shalabi in particular represented an absolutely crucial catalyst for the U.S war in Iraq. Shalabi and his allies cultivated uh, political figures and the media in Washington throughout the 1990s, not, not just after 9-11 and the uh, onset of the Bush administration. Uh, the Iraq Liberation Act, which was a bipartisan measure, passed Congress overwhelmingly and was signed by President Bill Clinton in 1998. This was designed to channel funds to Chalabi and the Iraqi National Congress as an embryo of an armed revolt against Saddam Hussein. Now, Chalabi kept uh, lobbying for U.S. intervention, and his organization was the chief source for the bogus intelligence about Saddam's supposed weapons of mass destruction. When caught after the fact, when there were no weapons to find, Chalabi said, well, we were heroes in error, as though this was an honest mistake. This was no honest mistake. This was total disinformation. And the um, administration and the news media ate it up. Judith Miller, one of the lead reporters for the New York Times, absolutely channeled uh, Chalabi's weapons of mass destruction propaganda, his uh, Saddam Hussein's alleged links to Al-Qaeda, which never existed. She just absolutely furthered that uh, propaganda and uh, fed it to the readers of the New York Times, which in turn generated stories in other newspapers and other media outlets. This was a crucial, crucial factor in building up and maintaining public support for U.S. military action in Iraq. So who was this guy? I mean, I mean, the INC in general, uh, was this a deposed party leader of a democratic, uh, you know, faction who was deposed by Saddam after he took over? I mean, what, what qualifications did this guy have? The INC was a, kind of a diverse collection of Iraqi expatriates. Uh, but the only thing they had in common was their opposition to Saddam Hussein. Uh, Chalabi was a kind of a renowned con artist. He was, uh, even while he was operating in Washington, he had been convicted by a court in Jordan of uh, defrauding investors and saving soldiers uh, through a bank that he operated. 
I mean, this this man was was involved in a lot of nefarious activities. And uh, when the U.S. finally abandoned him after the invasion and occupation began, because uh, they saw that he didn't have any meaningful support among the Iraqi people. His party, for example, in the first uh, parliamentary elections, managed to get 0.5% of the vote cast. And yet the U.S. had portrayed him and seemed to believe that he was the George Washington of Iraq. Well, once the relationship soured, he strengthened his ties to Iran. He had always maintained some ties to Tehran, but now he really became a fan of the Iranian government. Again, the U.S. just woefully misread the situation, even from the standpoint of the interests of uh, pro-interventionists in the United States. So it, it does feel like throughout the grand scope of American history, more often than not, the argument for intervention on the basis of you know spreading demo promoting democracy, supporting freedom fighters, um, uh, exporting you know Western values and, and the like. It, it works very well. It works more often than it fails, whether that's the you know, Mexican-American War, uh, the, the you know, Spanish-American War to the examples that we're talking about in your book. Why does it work so well? Why, why is, it, is there some kind of built-in American tendency that, that, that tends to favor those kinds of arguments? Why are we so gullible? I think part of it is that the American people would like to believe that the political leaders of this country, A, know what they're doing, and B, <laughs> <big assumption>. <laughs> uh, have uh, worthy aims in mind. Uh, all too often, one or both assumptions prove to be false. But the American people don't want to believe that uh, U.S. political leaders are utterly incompetent when it comes to dealing with foreign countries or foreign crises. And they certainly don't want to believe that U.S. foreign policy has embraced some uh, particularly unsavory values and practices. That's hard to accept, particularly since this is a democratic country. Ultimately, the American people, having elected these officials, are responsible for the outcome. I think it's interesting, too. You, you said that believe that our leaders are competent. Uh, this comes up with conservatives a lot, but I think it's a generally shared viewpoint. I think it's possibly our colleague Chris Preble or maybe Dave Rickers, our former colleague, used to say to conservatives, the military is an honorary member of the private sector um, in the sense of how how wonderfully precise and surgical and and how much of a well-oiled machine it is and this idea. And, and if you have this belief in how good our military is compared to other parts of the government, you know, surgical strikes we, that we can see everyone with these, you know, new technologies and even the ones we don't even know exist. So maybe we're overestimating the, the military intelligence that they're, you know, that they're listening to every phone call. So of course the American military would know whether or not this guy has support on the ground because they know everything because we're America and, and we have those kind of powers. And of course we can surgically strike everyone and not have any collateral damage. And of course, 
course, the military can set up a new country in Iraq because it, you know they can't set up a healthcare system in America according to conservative belief system. But definitely, the military and that well-oiled machine of smart, brilliant West Point grads can definitely do that in Iraq. And so, and so maybe that's part of the credulity too. The military is just supposed to be an instrument of policy determined by the civilians. It's not supposed to be a policy generator of its own under the uh, American constitutional system. And it is curious. I've always noticed that contradiction, particularly among conservatives who believe that the federal government is uh, inept when it comes to dealing with domestic issues for the most part, uh, but verges on being infallible when tasked with dealing with problems overseas. And that is a very weird uh, discrepancy of views. I, I never quite understood that either, but I've noted that phenomenon. It's very, very common. So more recently, um, there's been a trend, it's been particularly notable in the Trump administration, to hire um, former military generals, military officials, to to hold civilian posts, you know, cabinet-level positions. I'm kind of I feel of two minds. On the one hand, it's not as if not having military officials in these, you know, uh, civilian positions. Um, it's not like the previous order prevented us from having uh, an interventionist policy. Um, so how much worse can things get? But on the other part of me wonders if this is problematic, if having former military officials occupying what are supposed to be civilian positions overseeing, you know, civilian control of the military being kind of a fundamental of American virtue. Uh, how concerned should we be about that trend? I think it uh, reflects a larger problem. Um, increasingly, U.S. foreign policy has had a, a very strong militaristic orientation. And one of the uh, worries I have about appointing uh, a great number of ex-military uh, people to policy posts is that uh, that inherent bias uh, the the old saying that if all you have in your hand is a hammer everything begins to look like a nail and for those whose entire career has been in the military they're going to gravitate toward military solutions mm -hmm. that's a, that's a very understandable bias but even before the trump administration i think that us foreign policy was far too militarized. And the problem, if anything, uh, has, has gotten uh, a bit worse. On the other hand, you do have staunch interventionists who have never been part of the military. Uh, the advice that John Bolton, the national security advisor, is giving to President Trump is not likely to be uh, uh, cautious and uh, non-militaristic in nature, quite the contrary. But I, I don't think it's a healthy development to have a lot of ex-military people in the top civilian policy-making posts. That, that's not solving the problem. On that point with the current events, so to speak, so we've talked about some historical examples of, of gullibly supporting democratic movements. And, and right now, as we sort of record this, we're having some saber-rattling with Iran. I'm sure John Bolton has something to do with that. Uh, do are we seeing any of this now? Have you have you are you picking up on maybe even in Syria or some other places 
uh, some democratic movements that are being ballyhooed as, as the real insurgents that we have to support against these regimes that are kind of, we're quote unquote in current conflict with. I put that in quote, somewhat manufactured, but we, we, we believe that we're in current conflict with. Or is, is this happening again? With regard to Syria, I think uh, U.S. policymakers learned the hard way that their initial expectations that the opposition to Bashar Assad uh, would primarily consist of moderates and even many pro-democratic elements proved to be very untrue. The opposition was overwhelmingly Sunni Islamist. And you find most U.S. officials and even members of the, the media now backing away from portraying the uh, the remnants of the opposition as democratic in any way. Uh, where it is showing up certainly is in Venezuela. This is, this is the new uh, arena in which the United States is very confident that the faction that uh, Washington is supporting is very much uh, democratic. It is certainly opposing a nasty authoritarian regime. That's That's absolutely true. How democratic uh, the opposition is remains to be seen. But again, we have this high level of confidence that uh, Guaido and his uh, supporters are all good Western-style Democrats. Maybe yes, maybe no. In Iran, John Bolton and others have been big fans of the Mujahideen cult, the MEK. This is supposedly the democratic opposition to Iran's clerical government. The reality is this is a very weird, almost neo-Marxist religious cult. It has provided all sorts of indications that it's not a movement that we should want to support. Just because we dislike the Iranian government for very good reasons doesn't mean that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. The MEK is a very corrupt, very dangerous operation, and one that I suspect has not much more support inside Iran than the Iraqi National Congress and Ahmed Shalabi had domestic support in Iraq. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.